0: Mayo Clinic presents
1: Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.
0: Welcome to the September Grand Rounds episode from the Always On EM podcast, a podcast about emergency medicine from Mayo Clinic. My name is Venk bellam I am one of the hosts of the show and my ho- co-host Alex Finch and I are thrilled to have you joining us. Before we move forward. We want to give a special thank you to the many of you who have subscribed to our show recently, and a few special folks have taken the time to write out reviews on Apple Podcasts. In particular, thank you to Grace F. 816 and to Mommy. If you haven't taken the time to subscribe or follow our show or write a review like these two, please take a moment while you're listening to do this. It really helps promote our show on the various algorithms used by the platforms like Apple and Spotify, and it helps put our show in front of potentially interested listeners. Alex and I are so grateful every time. You have no idea how excited we are when we see a review or a new subscriber show up. If you do this, you can definitely go to bed knowing that you have made our lives better, and what better measure of a successful day is there? Well, truthfully, I can think of one other measure, that is to hear and learn from our Grand Rounds presenter today. I have the incredible honor of introducing Dr. Alex Niven as our Mayo Clinic Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds speaker for this show. He is one of the many colleagues we have here who I admire greatly for their clinical acumen and their drive to help uplift the health and well-being of the community we live in. Dr. Niven was a born educator from his DNA outward, and he teaches others at work and outside these halls every single day he received his medical degree from tufts university in boston and then completed internal medicine residency and pulmonology and critical care fellowship at walter reed army medical center in washington dc he serves as education chairperson for the critical care group at mayo clinic and also for the division of pulmonology and critical care medicine co-director for the pulmonary function lab and is professor of medicine His record of honors and recognitions is incredibly long. Among them, he has been recognized as Teacher of the Year by the Mayo Clinic Fellows Association, been nominated for the Hall of Heroes by the American College of Chest Physicians, and the Critical Care Fellowship Teacher of the Year here at Mayo Clinic. He has served as a member and vice chair and chair of the Education Committee of the American College of Chest Physicians, and leads many work groups and committees within chest as well. As you may expect, he is a frequently invited speaker around the world, sought after mentor by many next-gen trainees, and in addition to all of this, he has authored nearly 80 peer-reviewed publications and recently took over the prestigious Mayo Clinic Academy of Educational Excellence. We are incredibly grateful for your time and your teaching. Dr. Niven, thank you so much for being here. The floor is yours.
2: Thanks so much, Vank, for that incredibly generous introduction. And uh, I I just have to publicly acknowledge the the, the true treat it is to, number one, have an opportunity to spend some time with you all. And, uh, and also I, uh, I, I wanna recognize Vank for just the incredibly talented leadership that he has um, as education chair within your department. And I think the, uh, the very visible footprint that he has across the enterprise in terms of driving innovation and change when it comes to education. So anytime Vank asks me to do something, the answer is always yes. So with that, uh, my job today is to talk to you a little bit about difficult airway management. And I am acutely aware of the fact that I am presenting to a group of individuals who most likely intubates on a more frequent basis than I do. Um, And so I'm going to provide this uh, perspective from the viewpoint of an intensivist, because I think when you look at the current and evolving literature, when it comes to especially difficult airway management, our practices are frequently converging in more and more of a Venn diagram. And I think it's really important for us to understand our different perspectives when it comes to this common and unfortunately still very high risk procedure. Now I, uh, I'm going to use a couple of things to start framing the approach to difficult airway management using uh, the algorithms that we have uh, collaboratively developed as a faculty group within the airway management program with the American College of Chest Physicians over the course of, it's frightening to say, now 17 years. Uh, I was told when I became a board member for CHEST that that fiduciary relationship that you have as a board member of fiduciary responsibility then represents a conflict of interest. So I'm going to call out Ben Sanford in the back, who uh, who's going to keep me honest in terms of the stuff that I say. And uh, and he is also a faculty member for the airway course, Ron Walls, course. And so I think there's probably some interesting perspectives to balance back and forth with that. So. We're going to talk a little bit about how common difficult airways are in emergent airway management and their clinical consequences and go back and look at the available evidence with regards to the, to the primary failure modes that result in complications from difficult airways. We've got actually a lot of really exciting literature that's come out over the course of the last five years that I'm going to try to summarize um, briefly to make sure that we are all on the same page in terms of the most recent updates. And along the the way, I think we can also highlight um, both some controversies and some opportunities for improvement in terms of future research. So I have always thought about difficult airway management simply defined as difficulties with either glottic visualization or tracheal intubation. And so I was a little bit disappointed when I went back to the latest Difficult Airway Society guidelines and find that that definition has now been broadened to include difficulties with face mask ventilation, the performance of the procedure of laryngoscopy, ventilation through a supraglottic airway, intubation or extubation or really any sort of situation where you have difficulties with ventilation or oxygenation. That being said, that is probably reasonable in terms of thinking about the challenges that we face every day and the complications that unfortunately still remain relatively routine with this routine daily procedure that we perform. I, uh, I've been maintaining this uh, this graph for now a number of years and perversely adding each new study, uh, specifically focused on emergent or ICU airway management, looking at the incidence of hypoxemia, shown here in blue, hypotension or use of increased vasopressors in green, and cardiac arrest or death, shown in yellow. And... Although I think if you squinch up your eyes, you can imagine the slope of this slowly decreasing a little bit over the course of the last almost three decades, I'm going to argue that the rate of complications here still remains unacceptable for something that we do routinely on a daily basis. And we know that overall, when we face an undifferentiated population of patients requiring emergent airway management, about 10% of those folks will have difficult airways. Most of those folks are really the individuals who suffer these complications. Now, we also have a real world experience that's a little bit humbling. So this is the in-tube study. The next time you talk to the good Dr. Bauer, if you wanna get on his good side, you should ask him about it because he was one of the co-investigators. And uh, this was really a um, a snapshot of airway management uh, procedures performed in a huge number of ICUs across the globe um, over the course of a discrete period of time. And what the Intube study demonstrated was almost half of those patients who underwent an airway management procedure during the dedicated window of time um, during which the study was performed experienced some major event. And again, the the consistent complications that I showed in the last slide are the common complications that are described in association with difficult airway management. And in that population, over a third of those individuals did not make it out of an ICU. So I'd like to frame our conversation just briefly uh, in terms of a case that I'm sure will be familiar to you all. So this is a 62-year-old who presents with acute hypoxemic respiratory failure due to progressive signs and symptoms of pneumonia. Um, The patient's obese, has typical metabolic syndrome and its complications, and was placed on fairly aggressive non-invasive ventilator settings about an hour ago, and despite that, remains febrile, tachycardic, tachypnic, and is becoming more somnolent. So this is a person who looks like they're failing non-invasive ventilation, needs invasive um, intubation and ventilation. And you know just for the sake of completeness, this is their chest X-ray. And um, I, I don't think I need to, to tell you that this looks bad. So the things that we face in terms of challenges in a situation like this are many. So first of all, unlike our anesthesia colleagues, most of the time when we manage airways, they are done emergently which means we have limited time for planning and preparation. Um, and our, our patients in general are not fasted. They often have full stomachs. And so with that, a greater risk of aspiration. In terms of uh, the upper airway anatomy, many of our patients have an altered level of consciousness, and certainly when they come and see me in the ICU, it is not uncommon at all to have significant upper airway secretions and upper airway edema in these patients, um, many of whom have received a fair amount of intravascular crystalloid resuscitation. I think the Other major factor that has been uh, increasing in terms of both awareness and proactive management has been an open recognition of the challenges in physiology that we face on a regular basis. That snowstorm on the chest x-ray suggests that this patient has significant shunt physiology uh, which is driving both this hypoxemia and creating challenges in terms of potential pre-oxygenation and more rapid desaturation after um, apnea is induced following induction. There are individuals who talk about the shock index as a uh, a relatively reliable predictor of hypotension with induction. And then of course, metabolic acidosis and underlying baseline ventricular dysfunction increases the risk of further hypotension, arrhythmia, or potential cardiac arrest. I, I presented this patient, this was a real patient, with a BMI of 40 because I think that encountering patients who are a little upper Midwest size is not uncommon in our daily practice. And I think it's important to recognize the specific challenges that the obese patient presents when it comes to this procedure. So certainly because of body habitus, there are significant challenges in terms of appropriate mask ventilation due to difficulties with mask fit and potentially increased upper airway resistance from excess upper airway soft tissue. Certainly, depending on the individual and their body habitus, especially during the placement of acutely angulated blades, so we use, um, we use hyperangulated glide scopes routinely in our ICU, it's sometimes difficult to get that scope in the mouth because of the excess um, anterior chest soft tissue. And then we certainly know that, uh, that obese patients are at significant increased risk of difficult glottic visualization, um, both due to upper airway soft tissue and due to the risk of airway axis misalignment. We all are very well familiar with the modified Mallampati score and its correlation with uh, greater grades, uh, cormac lehane grades. So if you have somebody who has an increased modified Mallampati score, the chances that you are going to encounter more difficulties with glottic visualization goes up. And especially with obese patients, that heavy chest wall um, that, uh, that is part of their syndrome results in lower resting lung volumes and a decrease in FRC. And so as a result of that, you see significant increased difficulties in terms of pre-oxygenation and more rapid desaturation. And this is a classic study um, published now uh, over 20 years ago, looking at the time to desaturation uh, after induction, just demonstrating that graphically. So these were normal individuals induced in an operating room and time from induction to desaturation using rapid sequence intubation. You can see again, um, obese patients rapidly declining and You know, you introduce underlying cardiopulmonary disease, either acute or chronic, and you will see that time from induction to desaturation shorten even more. Probably one of the best studies looking at the contributing factors to complications during airway management is the NAP4 study. Now, although this study is relatively old, published in 2011, the methods that the authors used in this was really quite impressive. So this was a study done in the UK where they collected prospectively a registry of all airway management events done in the national health system. And as part of that publication, they broke out emergent airways performed in the emergency department and the ICU. And I don't think surprising to anybody in this room and where we practice, they found actually the majority of the airway management complications occurred in those settings. Um, and, uh, and well, I'm sorry, 25% of the adverse airway events occurred in these settings. And this was really the first time that the, the concept of human factors and challenges with teamwork and communication really came to the fore in terms of contributing factors for airway management complications. So as they systematically reviewed each of these airway management complications, what they found was Failure to proactively identify high-risk patients for difficult airways, failure to clearly formulate or execute a plan as a team, or managing problems in a logical, organized manner were the major contributing failure modes. And so I'm not going to say that patients in and of themselves were blameless in this process. Certainly, the, uh, the majority of patients that experienced a complication had some sort of feature that predisposed them to potential difficult airway management or complications. And I should say this is not an inclusive list. So the reason why the numbers don't add up to 100% is because there was multiple factors present in multiple patients. But education and training, poor judgment, inadequate equipment and resources, or poor communication were were clearly potentially the the most modifiable failure modes. So what I'm going to do is march through sort of a systematic approach to intubation, highlighting kind of the key elements that are available from the literature are supported by common expert opinion um, and also some opportunities where we still remain challenged and we don't really know the right way as we move through the preparation and pre-oxygen phase, the act of intubation, when the first pass is not successful, what we do in terms of rescue oxygenation and subsequent attempts, and finally a few words on front of neck airway. And, uh, and if there's anything that I can leave you with at the end of this presentation, it's taking a systematic approach in terms of planning, preparation, and teamwork is probably the most important things that we can do on a daily basis to maximize first pass success. All right. So let's start with preparation and pre-auctionation. And uh, so... This is a mnemonic that we put together um, that is just one of many out there to help think about a systematic approach um, to intubation that I try to do uh, in every patient, every time. Mm -hmm. So the first step is assessing the airway. The mnemonic that we use for that is uh, it's all in your hand. So certainly if there's a history of a difficult airway in the past from a prior intubation note, that is helpful thinking about the anatomy and features that potentially increase the risk of a difficult airway based on that. We'll talk more about that in a a minute. Neck mobility is obviously a concern if you were doing direct laryngoscopy, but less of a concern in terms of many of our video techniques. And just highlighting the fact that even though we've spent a lot of time trying to identify the best patients who anatomically have increased risk, Um, we don't always effectively predict those high-risk airways based on that initial assessment. What I usually do when I come into a room is start pre-oxygenating immediately because three to five minutes worth of pre-oxygenation while you're setting up your equipment, getting the team organized and preparing your patient can go a long way in terms of lengthening your time from induction to desaturation and maximizing your ability to place that endotracheal tube before the saturation drops below 88%. Plan, preparing all of your necessary equipment, including the drugs ahead of time is incredibly important. And then thinking about that crew resource management um, issue that we were talking about with a NAP4 trial, identifying the team members, reviewing the roles, primary and backup plans and auction cutoffs are incredibly important. So the individuals around you can anticipate the, uh, the things that you are going to do administering medication followed by intubation confirmation holding the endotracheal tube sort of rounds out the mnemonic. Now, there's lots of uh, information out there in terms of different anatomic features that potentially predispose one to have a difficult airway in terms of glottic visualization or difficulties with endotracheal intubation. Um, I simply highlight this meta-analysis that was published in JAMA in 2019 um, that, uh, that really brought to the fore the upper lip bite test. Which is um, of the available tests that are available, uh, the, that we have at our disposal, assuming, of course, that your patient is alert and aware to be able to try to bite their upper lip with their lower jaw, um, is, is the most predictive um, test in terms of identifying individuals with a difficult airway. In the ICU, we also focus on the Makocha score, which is a score that actually came out of France, looking at uh, a series of risk factors, the greater the number of which is associated with the greater the risk of intubation. Um, I will fully confess that I do not use the score on a regular basis because it's just hard to remember 12 things in my mind. Uh, but I think it illustrates very nicely the common elements that we associate with either an anatomic or a physiologically difficult airway. So pre is incredibly valuable, largely because we replace the anatomic dead space, the trachea and the central airways with 100% oxygen, essentially functioning as an oxygen reservoir once we deliver our induction and paralytic drugs um, and induce apnea prior to performing our intubation attempt. Uh, The... Pragmatic Critical Care Trials Group, now uh, several years ago, published a really interesting prospective trial where they looked at the use of bag valve mask ventilation after induction and prior to intubation, what has classically been considered an absolute no-no in terms of rapid sequence induction due to the concern of aspiration what they demonstrated in the PREVENT trial, which was published in, in the New England Journal, was a trend towards a uh, reduced incidence of severe hypoxemia in the group that received bag valve mask ventilation after induction and prior to intubation. And no increased risk of aspiration based on a fairly rigorous method, including both direct visualization of the upper airway um, and survey of the operator immediately after the procedure, and then examination of PF ratios and chest X-rays at 24 and 48 hours after the procedure. There are, there's certainly a lot of different opinions when it comes to apneic oxygenation. So maintaining a flow of either normal or high flow oxygen after induction and whether that reduces the risk of desaturation during intubation, at least in another single center study in the ICU, that has not been shown to be of clear benefit. Um, What do I do with that as an individual? Well, if the device is there and in place, I usually leave it in place Um, But I don't spend extra time setting up, say, a high-flow nasal cannula prior to to intubation simply to provide apneic oxygenation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to highlight the fact that there's been a lot of discussion out there in terms of the potential benefits of pre-oxygenation with either non-invasive ventilation or high-flow prior to induction. And uh, at least based on the available literature, there's not a clear signal that suggests benefit, although there are some heterogeneous signals in uh, admittedly studies of mixed quality, um, looking at the potential benefit of non-invasive ventilation in obese patients or severely hypoxemic patients at baseline. Another, I think, lost art, at least in the intensive care unit for us since the advent of hyperangulated blades and video, is thinking about the importance of patient positioning to maximize glottic visualization and this is just a few different examples of uh, different techniques that have been described in the literature that may help improve your glottic view so especially in that patient who is perhaps a little upper midwest size There is some data out there suggesting that building up the occiput so that you can align the external auditory meatus with um, the sternal notch might actually help align the oropharyngeal, hypopharyngeal, and laryngeal axes and improve glottic visualization. There is also data suggesting that the ramp position where we build the patient up um, and shift them either Um, in a 25 to 30 degree angle, um, or even in sort of a reverse Trendelenburg, as you see down here in the bottom, may help with pre-oxygenation, especially in individuals who have a robust middle section that otherwise is pushing up on your diaphragm and your lungs, um, and might even improve airway alignment, decreasing reflux risk. This is just an MRI sort of graphically demonstrating in an obese patient how building up the head and supporting the occiput with alignment of the external auditory meatus may help align the airway axes. And, uh, and I wanted to spend just a minute talking about the prospective randomized trial that was done in the ICU looking at ramp positioning, which was actually a negative trial. So this is the summary of the results uh, from Semler and his group on the right-hand side you see, uh, so this was a multi center prospective trial looking at uh, uh, unselected critically ill patients who were placed either in the sniffing position or in the ramped position prior to intubation. What you can see in the red is the sniffing position in terms of the grade view in the top right corner. Uh, the operator's perception of the difficulty of, of intubation easy, moderate, and difficult and then the number of laryngoscopy attempts necessary to achieve intubation success. And again, red is the sniffing position, blue is the ramped position. And in this study, actually, the ramped position performed less well than the sniffing position in this setting. Now, I include uh, a few graphics on the left here from a really fascinating letter to the editor, that was published in Anesthesia and Analgesia um, in response to that and a different paper, highlighting some of the key things that we really need to think about when we're talking about positioning our patients. At a fundamental level, what we need to be thinking about in terms of airway alignment is hyperextension or extension of the atlantoaxial joint, along with flexion of the cervical spine, and uh, and really the key here. And this was really not well described in Semler's paper is ensuring that the head is built up sufficiently high, uh, sufficiently to achieve those two primary goals. So I still find the ramped position uh, helpful, especially in obese patients uh, in the setting of really potentially difficult airways, but thinking about those concepts, I think is really important and vital if you're going to employ this technique. We're well familiar with the induction agents that are associated with intubation, and uh, certainly I think we use the same agents in terms of propofol, etomidate, and ketamine. I I think that uh, one of the things that that I am acutely aware of in in the intensive care unit setting, many of our patients are hypovolemic, many of them are in shock, and using full induction doses of these drugs will cause hypotension as a rule rather than an exception. And I have been regularly humbled when it comes to ketamine. We classively think about ketamine as a drug that provides a pressure response in terms of increased heart rate and increased blood pressure. Well, that's all well and good unless your patient is catecholamine uh, depleted, in which case we will often see significant hypotension in that setting as well. So what is the, what is the potential solution in this situation? Dose-reducing these agents is one one opportunity that we can think about. The other is preemptive use of vasopressors um, to balance out the predictable side effects that we see with these drugs. Um, And I should mention, because I reference him here, um, the article that came out of this facility looking at a 50-50 mix of, of propofol and ketamine as a potential solution to those challenges with hypotension that we just discussed, was actually a negative trial compared head-to-head with atomidate. From a neuromuscular blockade standpoint, I would actually be curious to find out just what percentage of cases done in the emergency department now um, are done with succinylcholine versus rocuronium. I, I think across the institution, with the advent of Sugamidex, We have seen a steady migration away from succinylcholine and towards rocuronium, which I think potentially makes sense in the operating room, but maybe not so much in the intensive care unit, where we're really not looking to reverse anybody on a regular basis when they present to us with respiratory failure. Um, The other thing, obviously, to remember for the residents in the room is the contraindications to succinylcholine, which are listed here primarily for board purposes, um, because I know you guys live this and breathe this every day. Other things that we think about in terms of planning and preparation in our patients prior to intubation, there are a lot of uh, quality improvements and poorly controlled studies that had discussed the potential value of fluid loading over the course of the years. We've now looked at this in two large prospective trials in the intensive care unit and found no benefit for fluid loading in the PREPARE-1 and the PREPARE-2 trials. Um, And so I've stopped doing this on a routine basis in in my inductions. We know really based on emergency medicine literature that rapid sequence induction uh, is likely the best approach to maximize first pass success in at least the the undifferentiated population of patients who present to us on an ongoing basis. Um, But again, one of the things that comes with that is a risk of hypotension given the fact that you don't know the underlying circumstances and situation of the patient that you're facing. Uh, And so really based on some very nice quality improvement work that Paul Mayo and his group at Long Island Jewish did back over 10 years ago, I think there's been a slow but steady creep towards preemptive vasopressor use in this setting, um, anticipating and uh, and and balancing the, uh, the effects of hypotension that we see with many of our induction agents. And that's especially important in the setting of distributive or cardiogenic shock, right ventricular failure, or aortic stenosis. So, Let's talk a little bit about intubation. So one of the things that we've really pushed as an airway group has really been highlighting the fact that that prevention of hypoxemia is perhaps just as important um, as placing that definitive airway um, in an acutely ill patient presenting to the ICU or the emergency department setting. And so, Obviously, if somebody is crashing and has very low oxygen saturations to begin with, we've got to move very quickly. And that automatically sort of moves us into a sort of a failed airway algorithm where we're focusing on restoring oxygenation first, stabilizing the situation, and then getting the endotracheal tube in. I think something that is largely a data-free zone in the intensive care unit is the use of awake intubation in individuals where you have time and clearly have risk factors for complications and a difficult airway. And this is something that I think we see um, practice highly variably based on the provider and the setting in our intensive care units and a clear opportunity for improvement, both in defining the right patient populations, the right upper airway topicalization, The right medications to use as part of that process Um, and then typically we we are using fiber optic intubation in this situation because as pulmonologists we feel a little bit more comfortable that way for the vast majority of the rest of the individuals really where we think we can get an airway we're going to put that person to sleep and uh, and intubate them in one way shape or form And this is really where we have a very exciting development with the DEVICE trial uh, that was just published a a little bit over a month ago now online first in the the New England Journal of Medicine. So this was a large prospective randomized trial looking at video laryngoscopy versus direct laryngoscopy um, and the rate of first pass success in an unselected population of patients presenting to to either the emergency department or the intensive care unit. Now, uh, you guys did much better in terms of overall recruitment. Again, probably because you see a lot more folks who require intubation than we do on an ongoing basis. We then receive them from you. So 70% of these procedures were done in the emergency department. And not surprisingly, the major indications for intubation were altered mental status and respiratory failure. What the device trial showed was a significant increased incidence in terms of first-pass success when a video laryngoscope was used. It's important to highlight that the vast majority of the video laryngoscope procedures were performed with a a more traditional uh, Stort-CMAC, McGrath-MAC, or Glidescope MAC blade, and the complication rates were relatively similar between the two arms of the study. A couple of details that I think are worth mentioning as an editorial comment. So on the left-hand side, you see the rates of hypoxemia, hypotension, new or increased vasopressor use, and cardiac arrest. And I will say, compared to those other data that I showed to you early on in the presentation, the performance of this group overall was quite good. So the major signal in terms of complications was um, really seen in the new or increased vasopressor group. And I honestly don't know whether that's a complication or a shift in practice. I've already reflected our biases up in the intensive care unit. But I think the other thing that's really important to highlight in the forest plot here is that a lot of the signal that drove the positive outcome here for video laryngoscopy um, was really driven by operators with lower levels of experience and greater degrees of exposure to video laryngoscopy. So, I, I think that there's ample data to suggest that as time has gone on in our training programs, we focused more and more on video uh, as somebody who supervises procedures on a regular basis I like it when I see what my trainee is doing, as opposed to dancing around in the corner and asking, what are you seeing? And I think that over time, that has led to greater and greater familiarity with VL. And so here, I, I think this, this may be um, the first sign of a tide that is changing for a new generation of airway managers. I wanna spend a few minutes talking about the benefits of bougie use, which again, this group probably uses bougies a little bit more commonly than we use in the intensive care unit. The bougie has really been demonstrated um, amply as an incredibly valuable tool when you have difficulties with glottic visualization or difficulties in terms of tracheal intubation to serve as a guide to find your way underneath the epiglottis, into the trachea and then railroading that endotracheal tube um, over that. And, uh, and really there's lots of data to suggest a high rate of success in um, patients who uh, have initial challenges with first pass success using the bougie as an adjunct in that setting. Now, Brian Driver and the folks up at Hennepin County published the BEAM trial back in 2018, which was really a very provocative study uh, suggesting that we should consider transitioning to um, the use of a bougie as a a routine tool for first pass intubation, sort of cannibalizing a concept that has been prevalent in the pre-hospital setting for some time and bringing it into the hospital. I show this data, not because it's new, but just really to highlight the tremendously high rate of first pass success um, that the folks at Hennepin County were able to demonstrate using um, a bougie first pass success rate, regardless of the of the grade of difficulty in terms of Cormac and Lee Hain grading, um, consistently statistically significantly higher um, in every grade, except for grade four. And again, just to highlight here, the vast majority of the time up in Hennepin County, they use a CMAC device, although they don't always use the screen with that. Now, based on that, the Pragmatic Critical Care Trials Group actually performed a very similar trial in their collaborative network of uh, 11 institutions, only one of which used the bougie routinely for first intubation attempts prior to this trial. And what was striking with the Bougie trial that was published in JAMA in 2021 was a completely different result. And so here, what we found was that uh, there was no difference whatsoever in terms of the rate of first pass success. And you can see here, um, based on the grade, again, no difference between Bougie first versus endotracheal tube and stylet. So what's going on here? Well, this is my editorial comment in terms of what I think the major differences were between the BEAM and the Bougie trial, and potentially some lessons that we can take and translate into our clinical practice. So we know at Hennepin County that they use Bougies all the time for their first pass. And as a result, their their trainees, and by the way, in both of these studies, the majority of the airways were placed by trainees have lots and lots of training and practice. When you look at the Bougie trial, um, although their operators, again, were trainees, but relatively experienced with a median frequency of 60 intubations um, prior to to enrollment in this study, their experience with Bougies was substantially less. So all of these individuals had um, a median of 10 uh, Bougie-assisted intubations. And in terms of the training that they received for this trial, that was largely left to the site, either the investigator or to a video that was provided during that study. So not surprisingly, training and experience potentially drives greater success. I think that's also illustrated by the fact that when you look at the amount of time that it took to place the endotracheal tube in BEAM versus Bougie, it was much faster in the BEAM trial, um, You know, almost two minutes in the Bougie trial, which kind of raises a lot of concerns in terms of the team and communication and practice in those um, varied institutions. Certainly, when we look at risk factors for obesity, difficult airway characteristics, And uh, and difficult views, not a lot of difference overall between these uh, these different trials. But it also begs the question of what really the role of a hyperangulated blade is when you have a bougie at your disposal. And I think that is a question that still remains to be answered. The last thing, and again, I I hate to beat this drum over and over, but it really bothers me to think about a routine procedure that we perform on a regular basis being associated with over a 10% risk of severe hypoxemia, an oxygen saturation less than 80%, or cardiovascular collapse and arrest. And clearly there's opportunities for improvement regardless of the technique that we choose here. Now, we spent a lot of time talking about the available evidence when it comes to our first pass attempt for intubation. But what happens when the endotracheal tube doesn't go in the first time? Well, rescue oxygenation really highlights the fact that in that setting, our priority must shift to preserve adequate oxygenation and ventilation first, and at the same time, continue to troubleshoot the situation to get a definitive airway in place. So typically in this situation, we think about bag valve mask ventilation first, And if we can stabilize the situation in terms of adequate oxygenation and ventilation, then we have time to think about the varied airway tools at our disposal. One technique that's been popularized by many systems, the VA being one of them, is the vortex approach, thinking about mask ventilation, endotracheal intubation, and extraglottic airways as the three sort of categories of tools at our disposal. And as we move through our sequential intubation attempts, Thinking about varying something in that technique, be it manipulating the patient, the larynx, the device, trying different adjuncts, different sizes, improving oxygen flow and muscle tone or relaxing muscle tone as the major tools that we have at our disposal. The concept with a vortex approach, of course, is that as time goes on and repeated attempts continue, um, the patient starts circling along that vortex, um, moving closer and closer to the center and a front-of-neck airway. Certainly, if we can't reestablish ventilation and oxygenation after our first attempts, then really our algorithm is fairly simple. We move very rapidly to attempting uh, restoration of ventilation and oxygenation with an extraglottic airway. And if that is unsuccessful, we move on to cricothyroidotomy. Now, I feel a little sheepish talking about extraglottic airways to this group, because again, you guys deal with these a whole lot more than I do, especially as for extraglottic airways that are placed in the pre-hospital setting, which is really where the majority of the data is. And I simply bring to you these two very large prospective studies that have been published over the course of the last several years. Looking at the effectiveness of extraglottic airway placement versus endotracheal intubation in the field and showing in terms of the rates of first pass success, they're much higher with, uh, with the use of a laryngeal tube and supraglottic device um, with significant associated benefits in terms of return of circulation, hospital survival, and neurologic outcomes. I think the thing was that was striking to me reading these articles was um, a follow-on study that I apologize that I didn't include on this slide. The driver published in uh, the Annals of Emergency Medicine last year that looked at the most common uh, the the most common action on the part of an emergency medicine physician after a patient with an extraglottic device arrives in the emergency department. And in over ninety percent of those patients, they took the extraglottic airway out and intubated primarily. It's a very different situation to what we face in the intensive care unit, because when we place an extraglottic airway, we're usually up a creek without a paddle um, and looking for something to stabilize the situation. Um, And once we have stabilized the situation in terms of, um, you know, in terms of restoring ventilation and oxygenation, we're going to take a very systematic approach in terms of fiber optic intubation through that device. Um, either with a tube exchanger or primarily with a bronchoscope. And we'll usually do that in the, in the operating room with, uh, with a, a surgical airway manager available. So if we need a front-of-neck airway, we'll be able to do it rapidly. So finally, a word or two about front-of-neck airways, which I think any airway talk has to include, because if you manage an airway, you have to be prepared to potentially um, perform a surgical airway if things go wrong. Now, as you might expect, the data in this area is not particularly robust. So, we certainly know that a four step surgical technique is most rapid. We make an incision, punch through the membrane, secure the trachea, and advance the cricothyroid, the, 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 the cric tube. Um, for individuals who are not super comfortable cutting the neck, which certainly I would put all of my internal medicine pulmonary critical care colleagues. There, there is a bougie-assisted approach using a modified or, or, and also a modified Seldinger technique um, that, uh, that translates into a greater um, frequency of per- first-pass success. It just takes longer, which may or may not be okay in this emergency situation. Certainly, doing a crike blindly increases the risks of esophageal perforation, subcutaneous emphysema if that tube gets, pla- gets placed in a blind track, and then risks of bleeding. But this can be a potential life-saving intervention, especially in an era where we are dependent more and more on glide scopes, um, which still can be challenged in terms of situations of upper airway soilage um, or marked anatomic disruption. The last things that I'd like to leave you with, we've spent a lot of time talking about planning, intubation strategies, and, and the data behind it, both in terms of primary and rescue strategies. There's certainly plenty of data out there, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, um, talking about best teamwork approaches uh, in terms of uh, shared crew resource management, um, you know, shared, uh, uh, shared situational awareness, um, and the communication tactics that go along with that. One thing that I will spend just a minute on is airway checklists, since that's something that has been studied and is something that certainly has been popularized as a method to minimize judgment and reduce errors of omission. So this has been studied, again, prospectively in the intensive care unit. And unfortunately, in the one study that has been done um, looking at this, there was no significant benefit in terms of the use of a checklist during ICU intubations. Now, one of the challenges of this trial was the investigators started off using a modified Delphi approach to identify what they felt were the vital steps to intubation that should be performed every time. This, again, was performed in major academic medical centers. You would assume that the processes associated with airway management should be pretty good in that setting. And so, arguably, if we select domains that should be done every time and are probably done consistently every time, the vast majority of of cases, um, well, we're not going to see a signal when it comes to checklists. And so we actually wrote a a letter to the editor um, in in response to this to highlight the fact that this trial really doesn't suggest that we should throw checklists out when it comes to airway management, but really just marks a beginning of the journey. Uh, because the most important thing is to identify the key points that must be done every time, perhaps simplifying even further the checklist of items that you see here. So with that, I'd like to wrap things up and leave just a few minutes for questions. I think what I'd like to leave the group with as a take-home point is the fact that we deal with emergent airways all the time and they are high risk because of both anatomic and physiologic considerations that we have to factor in 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 our planning and preparation because failure to plan is really planning to fail. And I think I've showed you ample data that right now our failure rates in terms of complications remain unacceptably high. Based on the available Uh, evidence to date right now, um, I'm still reaching for a video laryngoscope in the vast majority of the patients that I see in the ICU. Um, And I still really like using a bougie as my primary rescue technique if I have inadequate glottic visualization or if I have difficulty passing the tube. And when those first pass attempts fail, really, I think the most important thing that we need to guard against is task fixation focusing on placing that tube, placing that tube, placing that tube, and remind ourselves that oxygenation rather than intubation is our first priority, making sure that we've got help available, and making sure that we don't keep on trying to do the same thing over and over, right? Because the definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. And because we are all faced with situations where we have a crash airway, where we can't ventilate and we can't oxygenate, we all have to make sure that we think about extraglottic airways early. That's probably a greater challenge in the ICU than it is in the emergency department. And we all need to be, be comfortable potentially managing that patient with a front and neck airway if everything else fails. And with that, I'll thank everybody for their attention and love to open it up for a few questions and comments.
3: Alex, thank you. That was a wonderful talk. I, I have two comments and there's questions within them. Um, superglottic airways, we are not immune to having disasters with them. We've experienced those. I had one with a, before, with a King after when they were told they were safe, and it was one of the earliest complications. Right? Um, and um, one thing to think about is, as you alluded to the ICU, it's been in there for a while or it's failed. And when someone's put it in, there's usually, it's usually there for a reason. There is edema that does occur. These can be very, very dicey airways and I would not, these are not ones to sleep on. Um, as Francisco knows, I love the bougie. You could not get enough bougie. Um and um there's one other thing you said that I thought was really really important. And now I'm old and I forgot. But <laughs> oh the, the whole thing about task, you know, one of one of the benefits we have, one of the beauties of the resuscitation model that we have and is kind of the male model of team care is. You have someone do, in our resuscitation. you have someone, the proceduralist doing the airway, and that's someone who's back away managing the hemodynamics, and that's really important, and that's something I hope we never lose, and as, as residents, you go into the community, you won't have that, and it's very, very easy to get fixated on, I have to get the airway, I have to get the line, and to lose sight of everything else, because in order to get in that deep space to focus, And get something done you will lose sight of the bigger picture and it's not that you did anything wrong it's just how human brains are built right you can't multitask all you can do is task switch regardless of what everybody tells you so someone if you're in that situation somebody has to be keeping an eye on the bigger picture
2: yeah completely agree with all those statements i think that um it's important to highlight the fact the extraglottic airway is not a definitive airway and uh and so if there was an exciting situation that put it there um, then, uh, then it's going to be exciting once it comes out. If uh, if you're if you don't manage that preemptively,
1: thanks, Alex. That was so great and so clear and well organized. So thank you for that. My question is, since given that we're in a training institution and given that our patients are typically one to two midwestern units, would you <laughs> would you say that all trainees should just with the first pass use the bougie given the success of the BEAM trial? Like they should just always just use a bougie no matter what. And that way when they get to the harder airways, they have that down at least.
2: Yeah, you know, I think that's a very provocative question. And uh, and I think that, um, although I'm not sure if I can necessarily say that the data supports, you know, a clear cut statement that we should be using a bougie every single time we manage an airway, I think that, um, well, I teased Brian about this. We, we, had, uh, we had him and Matt for, uh, for Critical Care Grand Rounds for Journal Club, and, and I asked him basically what was the secret sauce when it comes to Hennepin County and their outstanding outcomes in terms of first-pass success. And I thought that his response was really very thoughtful, that really all the procedural tools that we have for airway management are just tools. It's the culture and the organization and the team that really drives their success. And I think part of that requires adequate training and experience in bougie management. So I think to back into that answer for you, I think it's more than just pushing the bougie with every intubation. I think it's it's pushing a well-organized airway management program, you know, teaching those tools that people can either propagate if they stay here as consultants, or carry with them to so many other areas um, across the country and the world that clearly have great opportunities for improvement in terms mm. of airway management for emergent intubations. Um, and I think we need to be skilled with the tools that we choose to, lose, uh, to, to use. And the and the bougie is an essential tool that we should be using. So how's that for a mealy dancer? Okay, <laughs> Sarah.
3: Um, I like how you pointed out the like half for hemodynamic support. We have colleagues in various specialties in this institution that have strong opinions about atomidate and the adrenal suppression. Do you guys in the critical care in the ICU do you tend to as a group have strong hate or love for atomidate versus ketamine, or do you guys not have a strong opinions? <laughs>
2: so I I think that we have move past the concern about suppression of adrenal steroidogenesis when it comes to etomidate. So um, I'm forgetting the name of the trial, but it was published in The Lancet now a number of years ago, large multicenter prospective trial randomizing patients to RSI using either etomidate or ketamine. And admittedly, that was full dose. Uh, And showed uh, they actually drew um, cortisol levels as part of that trial and clearly demonstrated a statistically significant increase in terms of steroidogenesis, but really no difference in terms of adverse patient outcomes. And I think as a result, you know, I certainly have moved past that. And although you'll still hear those words echoed in the hallway from time to time, I, I don't think it's a significant clinical concern. I, I think the, um, the bigger question that remains in my mind, and I, I hate to keep on uh, quoting those guys up north because they're going to get swelled heads, but, uh, but they published a really interesting study about recall after um, airway management in the emergency department, uh, demonstrating a, a kind of frightening instance of some degree of patient recall um, and, and associated uh, psychiatric complications uh, with those procedures and so, you know, I can glibly say dose reduce twenty five to fifty percent. That's going to keep the hemodynamics better, but uh, but how much is enough without reducing too much? I don't know the answer to that question, and I and I think that that is a, a fruitful area for future research. I thought there was another hand somewhere. Oh,
3: I was just wanted to say, um, answering to Neha, I, I got a
0: paper accepted. Um, last month in Annals of emergency medicine is a systematic review with 10,000 patients with Bougie. And what we showed was that Bougie was better for, for best, first pass success, yeah. particularly people with like uh, like worse airway like airways that are with uh, worse views. Uh, yeah. So what we ended up concluding with, again, 10,000 patients was that if you use it
3: all the time when you
1: really need it, you're gonna be proficient
0: at it. Right. Versus if you only use it for rescue, then you're not right. as good. And that shows should. with the slide that you show with the how long it takes with would you when you use it all the time versus when would you when you use it some of the time. So. Yeah.
1: So for the trainee, should we be using this more routinely? I th- I think the answer is yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I missed that reference. I'm sorry. I gotta get it from you.
1: Yet. I
3: mm-hmm. Uh I think, I one, think the paper you're talking about is a major, I'll send it out. Yeah, it was Academy versus atomic, a Large Study. There's no odd difference in outcome. I think it was a it was
1: a big deal. Yeah. So I can send there. So thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: Ben, maybe last word. I know I'm running over.
1: Alex, thanks for this is a wonderful talk. You you know me well, and you know I, I love <laughs> thinking and talking about airway stuff. So this was absolutely excellent. Um, I think uh, the the question that has been brought up about training and use of these devices is is really one that, as a trainee and also as the educators, we have to be thoughtful about because we know that use of video laryngoscopy is superior to use of direct laryngoscopy. The the data is clear. And when I exited residency, my mentor who is an airway guy as well said, you really should be consenting patients with the following verbiage if you're gonna use a direct laryngoscope. We have a better tool that's shown to have a far improved chance of success and lower complications but I'm going to use this. (laughs) And and he kind of equated it to doing a landmark guided IJ versus an ultrasound guided IJ. Like we we would never do that anymore. And, but the challenge is, is the video is all well and good until you have an airway full of vomit or blood or, you know, what have you. And so there are times when you need to be proficient and you know expert at DL. And so using these tools in a training setting where you are practicing your DL chops while still having the video laryngoscope in the mouth in the event that something bad goes wrong so that Dr. Niven can turn the screen around and say, okay, just look here, you know, we can move forward. Um, And I I think that's probably the sweet spot. And the same thing with bougie use, you know, you don't want to always only use a bougie because you you do want to know how that tube maneuvers in the absence of a bougie. Um, And the same thing with what you brought up about awake intubation. I I think that's such a a very important concept. There there are lots of patients that I think we should be considering awake intubations in who we know have difficult airway risk factors. And in emergency medicine, we are very, very easy to knee jerk right to using RSI because it's what we do. Um, and it's only in the direst of circumstances where the tongue is plastered to the roof of the mouth and sticking halfway out that we decide to do late fiber optic intubation. But there's there's probably a middle ground there where we need to be thinking about, well, this obese patient who really can't open his mouth very much, should we be topicalizing and doing this awake? And I think the answer is yes. And so you just bring up so many really thought-provoking things. And so thanks for a, a wonderful, wonderful Grand route.
2: Can't say anything better than what he just said. So, with that, I'll close. Thanks so much, everybody.
0: That was phenomenal, Alex. Thank you so much. I can't wait for us to get to work together on another project in the future. Audience, you heard some great reactions from some voices we have already heard on our show, including at the end, Dr. Ben Sandifer. If you have, quote, air hunger, end quote, for more airway content, check out his amazing discussion about angioedema and the awake tracheal intubation in season one, chapter 13 of this show. That chapter continues to be among the most lauded shows we have ever put forth. Well, that wraps up our September content. We have some fascinating stuff in the works for October, so please join Alex Finch and me on October 1st. In honor of Halloween coming, we will aim to shed light on the scary parts of emergency care and provide sweet candy nuggets of knowledge. Until then, let us be as Dr. Charles H. Mayo described in 1931, quote, if we excel in anything, it is in our capacity for translating idealism into action. The Always On EM Podcast.
1: Emergency Medicine Grand Rounds.